0: This is the Ben Burnett Show, the only show in America that features a one-term has-been retired politician that nobody
1: knows. Welcome into the Ben Burnett Show. I have had United States senators, lieutenant governors, guys who own diamond businesses, CEOs, Heisman Trophy winning running backs, but I have never had an admiral, Admiral Tillman pain welcome to the show
0: thanks ben it's really great to be here
1: i you, you say all the right things man i'm I, I hope to learn something in the hour i'm going to spend with you we'll see it's tough me too it's tough for tougher guys like me how did you grow up
0: yeah so great question uh, my dad that's actually was,
1: that's a terrible question no
0: but but it speaks to my culture so my dad was navy and so I grew up in a Navy family. We moved every couple of years. Every three. Sometimes shorter, sometimes 18 months or two years. You know, numerous cross-country trips. Yeah, we lived around the Washington, D.C. area when he was in the Pentagon. We lived in San Diego. Um, oh, that's rough. Out there. Uh, we lived in Pensacola. Yeah, just, you know, my it was a nomadic existence.
1: Through, through your entire
0: childhood? Up until I went into the Naval Academy. You know, I chose that life for myself as well.
1: You didn't know any different.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Yeah, so I went into the Naval Academy at 18. Uh, so four years of school, I got my commission in 1981. And then I continued that lifestyle up until just a few years ago when I retired from the Navy.
1: Talk to the kids that are interested in going to a service academy about the process and the things that are most important to that process. If you are 15, 16, and you're thinking about going to school for four quote unquote, free on the backs of the federal taxpayers. And we're grateful for all of you that want to do that. Talk about the things that those children need to concentrate on when they're adolescents and young adults.
0: It sounds great. It's very competitive to get into one of the service academies. It's a fabulous education. And the free part is attractive, certainly to parents, you know, at the cost of education, the the, uh, higher education nowadays. But I would encourage those those uh, young folks that are looking at doing that, that, that want to attempt that, that it really needs more than just uh, good grades, propensity, uh, an athletic inclination. You know, student body government, uh, public service. Yeah, yeah. You really eagle
1: scouts. You,
0: you, but but you have to be motivated by a desire to serve. It's uh, it's a hard way to go through college. <laughs> And you are missing out a lot of the college experience that your peers are going to have.
1: Oh, I would say that's probably the understatement of a lifetime. Will you report on July first or whatever it is before your freshman year, and they just start running you through six or eight weeks of? Yeah. What are you a plebe?
0: Yeah, you're you're a plebe, and I can tell you that the, uh, it's they do it a little different now. But yeah, we reported in right around the Fourth of July, and we had what the equivalent of boot camp would have been, you know, for a, a college freshman. Call them plebes, which is the the lowest amoeba um, scum of the earth. <laughs> yeah. I'm
1: sure they let you know that
0: too every yeah. day. And all the service academies, they're all plebes. All the the uh, freshmen, first year plebes, and it's hard and it's rigorous. You uh, but you get a lot out of that. Oh, I'm
1: sure. Y- you know, I the network I, alone is remarkable. <laughs>
0: but you know, I have to to chuckle now when I do the laundry and I fold my own socks or t-shirts. I fold them exactly the way I learned at the Naval Academy.
1: You make your bed the same way. <laughs> I
0: do. Talk
1: about deciding that for yourself. Dad's career, military,
0: how far did he go? So he, he retired as a captain after 28 years. W- was
1: he around when you uh, passed him by on the on the, on the 0005, <laughs> 0607 chart?
0: He was, yeah. Um, but, uh, but he was very proud of it. I'm sure. Yeah.
1: They don't hand those out. I don't know if you know this, but there's not a lot of people who
0: go that far. Yeah, I was, I was very honored. I was a little bit lucky, a little bit timing, and uh, some hard work as well.
1: So it, for those of you at home, I always know if I have somebody who's former military or retired military, m- and my dad beat this into me, I'm late for nothing. If you, if you schedule me at 3, I will be there at 245 or 3. I'll wait on you, and I don't take it personally. To Admiral Payne's credit, the interview started at three o'clock, and he was here at two forty-seven. If there's a lesson you can take from this, and only one, if you're early, you're on time. When you get out, what was your what was your MOS? What did you want to chase?
0: Yeah, so I I retired out of Guam, you know. So the the things that I looked Be- before at before it tipped over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, before it was at any risk of tipping over. Um, you know, my wife was a foreign service officer, and she had. Cobbled together a career over my career and sort of taken the back seat to my career, but done very well of our own, on her own accord. And so when it was time for me to leave the Navy, I said, "Hey, honey, wherever you want to go, I will, I will play backup to, to your first fiddle." And we ended up coming to Georgia. Sort of surprised us. Then when I thought, "Well, what am I going to do there?" I uh, first I came up with a list of what I didn't want to do, which is more important. Yeah, <laughs> right. And i I also wanted to have my at the time my oldest was starting high school and my young and, and was on about his sixth or seventh school. You know we talked earlier about the, the and, and so I wanted to sort of be home for him. I have a, a son and a daughter, and she was going into I think sixth or seventh grade and and so I wanted to be home for them and participate in their athletics and school events. The other thing that struck me was all through my time in the service, one of the things that I enjoyed the most was the ability to mentor. And sort of coach young sailors and uh, young officers to be the best that they could be. And whether that was in the military or, or if the best pass was out of the military, that was okay too. But to really help them make the most of, of their lives and their time dedicated to service. And, and so that it seemed like a natural segue to me to become an executive coach. I've done that. I went. And I got a certification and now I
1: You've been you've been to the Naval Academy, and you got a certification.
0: And I got a certification on uh, sort of leadership development and executive coaching, and so I work with with uh, companies and government agencies in that vein. Now,
1: is the is the private sector just hilarious to you?
0: It's interesting because it, there are a lot more similarities than I anticipated, especially with high achievers. Yeah, yeah. And when you talk about leadership development and succession planning and issues with people in the workplace, people factor. Is uh, common across all of those, uh, demo- or all of those uh, commonalities. I guess whether it's corporate or military.
1: Nick Saban says it: high achievers don't like mediocre people, and mediocre people don't like high achievers. Those two things they never change. And if you are not, if you are one of them, you if you are a high achiever, you will be resented by nearly everyone based on the fact that you are successful. And it's petty, and it reigns ever true. As you progress your career, where are some of the interesting places and assignments that you that are that are really fond to you? But I yeah. feel like that's a pretty good softball,
0: yeah, yeah. and, and so nice softball, but but actually kind of hard to answer, Ben, because you know, I feel like every assignment I had was growth and development in, in different ways. You know i I had uh, three tours in the Pentagon, and I was in different directorates each of those times. And so, Um, I mean, one of the times I was I worked for a political appointee during the transition from the Bush administration to the Obama administration. And so to to see how the wheels of our government work at that layer below the elected officials, but at the appointed, the political appointed, you know, Senate confirmed officials and how that affects all those government agencies and, and really the whole town of Washington and across the nation. Uh, was just a fascinating uh, confirmed?
1: Were you confirmed in the Senate? I, I was not. Oh, I was going to say who voted against you.
0: No, but I was the executive assistant for one of those Senate-confirmed assistant secretaries of the Navy. Uh, I worked in that hallway with, with all of those, with the secretary of the Navy and the undersecretary and all the assistants. And so just to see that dynamic as the administrations changed was fascinating to me.
1: Talk about some of the different things that you did in the Pentagon. And if you've never been on the tour, I don't know, after 9-11, can you still—you can go on a tour.
0: You you can, yeah.
1: Okay, because I I went in 2000, and you still could. Talk about what makes that place special, and what what makes that the the bane of the existence within the contractor base in the swamp.
0: So we used to jump—you know, I've had three tours, and— I always used to call them dog years because every year was like seven. You know, every day was like a week. You do things and the stuff, the, the issues that I worked on my first time there, I was on the Navy staff. So it's active duty centric, you know, sort of the operational staff of the Navy um, doing the administration and the budgeting and the programming and managing the program my first time. But it seemed like a lot of the things I worked on then when i came back and i was on the secretary of defense staff so so a different joint staff different roles mission
1: which but, which one was it uh, um which secretary of defense oh
0: uh for secretary rumsfeld but but it's not like i had lunch with him or anything i don't think he was a big I, staff
1: i don't think he had lunch with anybody
0: <laughs> yeah he had a, it was a big staff but but it amazed me how little progress might have transpired on some of those issues over 4 or 5 years or 20 yeah
1: when you read your biography online, and so I, in full disclosure, I do very little research, but I've never had an admiral, so I was like, I really don't want to screw this one up. Talk to me about your roles and responsibilities towards the end of your career in the Pacific.
0: Yeah, so uh, I finished up my career in Guam. So I was the Commander of Naval Forces Marianas. It's, Guam is part of the Marianas Islands. There are about uh, 14 islands actually around Guam. I also was, uh, I had another half. And I was the U.S. defense representative for the Marianas and Palau and the Federated States of Micronesia, which was pretty cool because I got to travel to those places and work with the embassies and and stuff.
1: What do you when you get to that level? Like I'd have no I know how to get to most places. I have no idea how you navigate a career to that point. And you're like, congratulations, you're probably a captain at the time. Congratulations, Captain Tillman, we're going to promote you, and you're going to the Island of Palau or the Republic of Palau, did you like pull up, or had you been around the world enough that you knew where it was or were you like, where are, where are they, where the hell are they sending me?
0: Well, you know, the, the, uh, the short of it was in going to Guam, once I knew I'd made admiral. So, so there's a big flurry, you know, do you see who's rotating, you know, who's in the different jobs for brand new admirals that's rotating. And, and there's a, there's sort of a, um, odds going on who's going to go where, Right. Some jobs are just for aviators or, or surface warfare. Do um, aviators make it to Admiral? Oh, sure.
1: They're, they're, you know, they're, <laughs> There's a ton of people now after 20 years of conflict that have really high ranks. There are more aviators
0: than there are submariners or surface folks in the Navy. But um, my wife, Suzanne, I came home and, and uh, the secret, I mean, it's kind of secret, is, hey, you're on the flag list. OK, so where are we going to go, honey? And I said... I'm not sure it's probably one of these, you know, and I list four or five places. I said, but, but I can tell you where we'll never go. We'll never go to Guam because that's always a nuclear submariner because that's where we have three or four submarines out there and a subtender. There were no surface ships. I said, so, so we can rule that out, you know, and we started looking at these other places. And so then I, a couple weeks later, I went in to see the flag detail, the, the person who tells the admirals where you're going to be assigned. And he said, hey, I got great news for you. You're going to Guam. Not at all what I expected, but it was a wonderful tour.
1: Is it as pretty as Hawaii? It is. Is it like 100 years ago? Behind? Is it like if you go to Fiji or some of those places, it's like a Hawaii 100 years ago before it all got messed up by capitalism. I say that kind of in jest. Talk about Guam and their relationship to the United States. Are they happy to be a territory?
0: Uh, it depends who you ask.
1: Currently, more so than with China out there pounding their chest.
0: Yeah, yeah. It, um, again, pretty split. There, there are uh, the
1: locals are not happy.
0: Well, there's some of them that that embrace the military and say, "Hey, thank goodness that you're here to protect us." And the opposite side of that is, you know, if we didn't have so much military, we wouldn't be a target, and we wouldn't need so much protection.
1: And they're both right. <laughs> they're probably both yeah. right.
0: But, but there's some parts of Guam that are really first world, I mean, sort of like downtown Waikiki. And, and there's some other parts of Guam that are that are not nearly as advanced as that that are sort of undeveloped. Uh,
1: un, yeah, they're, they're de- it's a developing part of the nation state. Yeah. When you look at Palau and Micronesia and American Samoa, I have to imagine you went there at some point. And I know ha- I know three quarters of them from living, Kaneohe Marine Corps Base headquarters in Hawaii. It's, uh-huh. be- it's, be- it's still beautiful. And I know that there were a lot of people who would come and go. Hawaii was like the clearly the closest state, and it's not close. Yeah, But talk about what was neat about seeing the U.S. presence. You always hear the sun never sets on the British Empire. I feel like America probably doesn't have the quote-unquote empire that it once did. There's a lot of friendly places out there. Especially, no one probably knows that as well as people in the Navy.
0: You know, to go to these foreign places, and, and uh, it, it, there, was, there was always a mix. You know, places places that really supported the U.S. military and, and wanted you to come in. They wanted to have more ship visits. Cause, cause money. That, yeah, yeah, that pumps a, a lot of uh, money into the economy. You know, it helps with their development. They're very interested in having what we'd call a partnership for peace. You know, we send uh, one of our hospital ships usually every other year through some of those developing countries and provide
1: dental care. Yeah. Physicals.
0: And and it's not just U.S. medical personnel. It's a lot of allies and partners that go on those ships and do those those visits and do a lot of good.
1: You're popular then. Yeah, very much so. Having seen the world and we could take some of the Pacific out of it. Military, what is the most beautiful military installation where you're just like, man, if it, everybody needs to see this once?
0: I would tell you, our, uh, I spent three years in Japan. I was the CO of the base in Sasebo, And it was a joint base between the, the used by the Japanese Navy and, and the U.S. Navy. Yeah, Maritime Self-Defense Forces.
1: There you go. Yeah.
0: They kept the base. We were sort of tenants, but, but we were the big dog right? We had the most ships and stuff, but but uh, it was beautifully manicured. It was really well taken care of. The facilities were first rate, and, and it was a beautiful experience in Japan. If I And I, I went there as an 06, and if I'd have known how lovely Japan was and how much fun I was going to have, I would have tried to get there a lot earlier in my career.
1: Did you take your family pretty much everywhere? Three years, I imagine you, yeah. you have to. Yeah. What's the hardest part about being deployed?
0: So it was it was missing the family. You know, I will also say that I didn't get married till I was 38. You know, I was. Oh, so you were smart. <laughs> I was on my first Pentagon tour. You know, I'd, I'd already. Uh, That's right. We're
1: going to find an American <laughs> in one of these places. I bet they have one at the Pentagon.
0: But I, so all my division officer tours, my department head tours, a, a lot of my sea time was behind me. I, I was, you know, I was at the 17 or 18 year mark at that point.
1: They liked you tied to a desk when you get to start approaching 40. They're like, this guy's not much good out here. <laughs> Being single, being an officer in the Navy, I mean, I imagine you've seen more of this world than you haven't.
0: Yeah, and um, you know, not just internationally, but but I think that the lifestyle we talked about earlier, you know, all the moves, you know, I've driven across country eight times.
1: Every time, every time you got re, every time you got transferred from one military installation to another, they give you thirty days off. Yeah, or thirty days, because I know that because I have seen. 47 or 48 states of this creation i had been to yellowstone two or three times by the time i was 10 yeah and i i still if somebody was like do you want to go i'd be like i mean i guess you've see you see and it's an experience like nobody else honestly if you sit in a white collar job you don't have that opportunity yeah and nobody gives you 30 days off in any former fashion. So if you're moving every 18 months or 2 years, like you've seen is there any, is there a state you haven't been to? No. You you hit them all. Hey, I bet you've hit all of the national parks too at this point. You had to like start finding different things to do. Yeah.
0: Um but it, but it's something that uh I think a lot of Americans don't appreciate and they don't get a, don't don't get the exposure.
1: It's a huge country.
0: Yeah. And, and to drive across, I mean, uh flying is so easy. You know, if you're going to go from coast to coast, you just fly. It's
1: five hours. Yeah.
0: And, and uh, you know, for the Navy, you were either on one coast or the other. In general, you needed to have an ocean nearby. And, and so we would drive from coast to coast and, and we'd go on the southern route or, you know, all the different times. We went through we, Canada at one point and we went down through Texas and, and everywhere in between. You know, this country is really spectacular. It and, is. And, and, and a lot of people don't appreciate you know the grand canyon or or yellowstone or they're or, huge uh, yeah and and that that grandeur and and the diversity of the country from the stockyards of austin to to the mountains of colorado you know unless you get out there and see them it's just not the same
1: no and glacier national park and all the places in new england and south dakota it's idaho it's beautiful yeah and like i'm pr- i love the south i've lived here for most of my life there are a lot of things out there besides pine trees and small mountains. Yeah. I, and it's a great place to live because there's a temperate climate. Did you ever do a tour in Monterey?
0: I did, yeah.
1: That's another that is yeah. truly spectacular.
0: Yeah, I spent uh, a couple of years in uh, Monterey. The Navy has a postgraduate school out there. So I, I got a master's degree and and uh, lived on the central coast there.
1: And that is, for those of you at home who have never been, it is on the cliffs between Monterey and Carmel, I remember driving through probably 10 years ago and I saw it and my, my dad had tried to get a, an assignment there because I'm sure it's sought after. Like, you want to talk about rough duty, there's plenty of them, that ain't one. I Eating breakfast out one day, I was like, this is, might be the most beautiful place in the country. Yeah. What year did you retire? Uh, 2014.
0: 2014.
1: So you retired and Obama was in the middle of his second term. Mm-hmm. And it's essentially I'm going to I'm going to date you just a little bit although I can it's 10 years later. Yep. What changes do you see that the country has made or that the military has made that you roll your eyes at think is that the right direction? And, and, and talk about the perspective of somebody who'd spent 30-plus years in the military, at what you see in this country in 2023
0: and 2024. Yeah, well, I'd, uh, I'd say it sort of transcends administrations in, in a bigger picture. You know, the, the wars, Iraq, Afghanistan, those conflicts really took a toll on, on, uh, on the nation, on our, uh, on our treasury and, and on our people. We spent a lot of money, and um, we sent a lot of young men and women over to those countries to to, um, to fight and and to help rebuild and reconstruct. And I think that we're suffering a little bit from that now, in that that uh, it's hard for the military to make their recruiting numbers, and and we're dealing with the fallout, the PTSD, the sailors, soldiers, airmen, marine, coast guardsmen that that. Uh, Fighting the veteran piece of that engagement.
1: I met Admiral Payne at a funeral a couple of weeks ago for a friend of ours named Mike Fowler.
0: Mike and Pammer,
1: they're just super people. Yeah. Uh, and I was like, I'm going to have you on the show. You know, as a guy who spent 30 years in the in the Navy, 30 plus. Fair, let's be yeah. fair to you. Yeah. You said that the biggest problem that this country faces is our division. And if you were running for – if you were running for president, I'd have stood up and clapped because I like the guys like David Petraeus and I like the guys like General Mattis, Secretary Mattis, who I don't know how they feel about anything politically. But I know they're patriots. Yeah. And if they were on a ballot – and they're both too smart to sit there and be like, I'm not doing that. Yeah. But if it was somebody like that, I think this country needs to have somebody with the perspective of the 35-year military career that knows how to deal with people, that knows that the 300-plus million people in this country are good people. And I think that that is a message that was, would resonate, and we haven't heard
0: that in a long time. The, the thing that troubles me most about the country right now is that, that there doesn't seem to be a compromise. You, you know, we're so polarized— that that um, whoever doesn't agree with you is your enemy, as opposed to um, somebody that you can learn from and get a different perspective from. And one of one of the uh, the most important leadership principles I learned early on, I think, that informed my leadership philosophy throughout my career was: first, assume positive intent. You know about people that people want to do the right thing; they want to do a good job. They want to be proud of what they do. They want to make a contribution. But instead, we seem to to have migrated to a point where, oh, well, well they're a conservative and I'm a liberal or I'm a conservative and they're a liberal. Therefore, um, I don't like them and we're not going to get along.
1: It's true in a lot more ways than just Washington. <laughs> but when you think about that, do you think that the day – exists where say it, but the last time I feel like the country was really in one place that was ready to get along was before the politics of COVID. And it wasn't it was just foreign. It was scary. Everybody knew that they didn't know. Everybody knew somebody that had been affected in the same way that you get these generational Pearl Harbor 9-11 COVID pandemic and I laugh, but the United States federal government—they turned on the wartime economy over a, essentially a virus. Yeah, and I'm sure to some degree they were—they knew what the people like yourself in other facets of government knew that that day was out there because you spend your whole life training for a conflict. Let's not be yeah. remiss as to what the Navy's job is. Yep, it's to—it's to make somebody's life incredibly hard if they ever want to flex their muscle at the United States interests. I would like to say that that most of the time the United States interest might be at home, but there are other circumstances. Yeah. And I feel like the division that comes after these events that unite us, I don't know if it's special interest groups that sit there and, you know, it's easy to say Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson, Johnson. It's easy to say Lockheed, Raytheon, Booz Allen, Hamilton. It's like everybody has to wait for their turn to be the like it thing. But do you think that there is a day out there knowing where the media is, having had to deal with the media in a foreign way and as a essentially diplomat from administration to administration? I'm not going to pretend that you spoke on behalf of Donald Rumsfeld, <laughs> but I know that you were in, a, in conversations. You helped shape his opinion or he helped shape yours and vice versa. And, you know, you only have so much control over the secretary of right. defense. Yeah. Do you think that the day exists? where this country is ready to be in one unified peace again?
0: Yeah, I, I do, be, because I uh, I think positively about our country. I think it was Winston Churchill that said, uh, democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others. And, and so it's uh, it can be messy. And, you know, I, I talked about my time at the Pentagon, and you saw some of the compromises that people had to make and and things that, made our that suboptimized our form of government. But I still wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't fight and defend any other place on the planet.
1: And you still would today.
0: Yeah. And, and so I think that, you know, I have tremendous confidence in the American people and the youth I see joining our military today. I mean, they're really, really sharp. Those the young men and women that, that uh, are joining, they want to make a difference. They want to be part of something bigger than, some, than themselves and their patriots.
1: And every time I see them, they get younger and younger <laughs> and younger. And you have a you have a son. I do, who has just graduated from the University of Florida. Yep. Who has decided that he's going to be the 18th generation Payne? Yeah. Probably the third.
0: He, he's uh, uh, up at. Do officer. you guys
1: do you guys do anything else besides join the Navy?
0: <laughs>
1: uh, if your daughter joins the Navy, are you going to be like, no, honey?
0: Yeah, she will not. Um, <laughs> although uh, she's at uh, University of Maryland in public policy, so it wouldn't uh, wouldn't surprise me. It's if, even worse <laughs> if if she did participate in the government at some point. Yeah, my son's at Officer Candidate School, and he will be commissioned uh, in about a month as an ensign, and he's going into the Surface Warfare community, which is where I served.
1: Or right, we're going to get into some foreign things, okay? Which I imagine you have had experience with at some at some point. And I have not. But I but I read. You see a year plus Russia invaded Ukraine and you hear constant talk of the Spratly Islands in the South China Sea and the Chinese desire to invade Taiwan. But do you have concern over those geopolitical things? Do you think that it's a it's a bygone era where the United States doesn't need to be involved in the United Nations to any extent? like President Trump suggested or our friends in NATO where he demanded that they all paid two percent. If you had to ask me to pick, I like NATO. I just do. Yeah. And I feel like probably most people in the military are like we like them. Yeah. How often do you think about those geopolitical events like Russia invading another country? And, and what are your thoughts there today?
0: Yeah, yeah I, I do spend time. Um, I try to I try and uh, still say stay pretty engaged and informed on all of those happenings around the world. And, and I had a front row seat, you know, out in the Pacific. Um, I also have served in Europe, uh, in the Mediterranean, you know, deployed over to the Mediterranean. I
1: bet that's tough. Um,
0: <laughs> and a lot of time in the Persian Gulf. Nowadays, any, any state actor, any, even non-state actors, have the, the capacity to wreak such havoc on the world. The, the entire world can destroy itself easy yeah and, and so in about an hour <laughs> if not faster so it does concern me and but i don't think that conflict is inevitable but i think it has to be carefully managed by strong diplomatic efforts you know the military is what backs up your diplomatic efforts but but uh, the diplomacy has to come first
1: how do you see how do you see the ukraine russia saga ending? I don't know the answer to that. I know that any way they would want to end it quickly would mean that they would also end quickly.
0: Well, that's the $64 million question. I don't know that anybody has a good answer for that right now. There are a lot of different scenarios that that they talk about. I would love to see Putin not rewarded for the transgressions, for his aggressive foray into Ukraine.
1: What happened to him? Like, do you in your mind, do you think that that individual, President Putin, quote unquote, President Putin, do you think something changed in him or do you think that that was the plan all along? Because they were relatively not they weren't allies to the United States, but they certainly were not who they are in 2023. You know, he called George W. Bush after 9-11 and said, I want you to know we didn't have anything to do with this. And if you need any help, you let me know.
0: You know, they've gradually uh, built themselves back up. I think the, the fall of the Berlin Wall and the—, the
1: uh, yeah, They took it personally. Yeah,
0: and, and the whole—the breakup of the Soviet Union cut them deeply nationally. He's been uh, building up that national sen- nationalist sentiment.
1: Yeah, but home. people who live in a third-world country aren't loyal to a government most of the time. And they have a first-ish world military. We thought they did— They definitely have the potential to inflict incredible amounts of damage all over the world. But when you put them on the ground and you send them to invade clearly a lesser opponent who is outgunned and outmanned and all this and that, and they can't seem to knock them off, you hear a lot of people on the Republicans, and I am in favor of funding the war in Ukraine if it's $50 billion in fiscal year 2023 until the United States proves that printing money is not something that they're just going to, you know, willy-nilly well, stop. I'm like, I'm spending $50 billion a year to keep him busy. Yeah. And it doesn't involve me beyond a check. Is the United States careful about what they send and how they help militarily?
0: Yeah. They, they've they been careful, you know, their secrets we don't want to give away. I would hope so. Yeah. And, and
1: then there's... Even if there are no secrets. And I
0: think we're, we're mindful, the people that are making these agreements... And I don't have any special intel, but my f- sense is that they're careful from an escalation perspective. We're trying not to escalate the conflict, trying to, to keep it contained there, uh, come to a, a favorable outcome for Ukraine.
1: I want to shift gears to Taiwan, which for those of you sitting at home and you don't want American troops involved in the Ukraine, and I understand if the Chinese invade Taiwan, there will be American troops involved in that in, a, in the first person. You agree?
0: Uh, I think we've made that commitment pretty clearly, yeah.
1: For an extended period of time. You think China ultimately knows that the West will come to their aid in a way that they would not, the Ukrainians?
0: Based on, on our public sentiments, yes. I, I would also like to see neither China nor the U.S. press that. <laughs>
1: No. <laughs> Look, there's a lot of people that would get killed in a, in a, in a conflict like that. And, you know, every time it's, it's interesting when you go or come back from Hawaii, it's like one of the respite centers where they recover things from World War II. And most of the time when you come back from Hawaii and you land at Hartsfield, they ask you to stay seated because there are remains of a service member that have been recovered somewhere in the Pacific. It's honestly an out-of-body experience that happens most of the time you fly back from Hawaii. And you don't – like most people don't have that experience. It is interesting, and I don't know that it's the social studies curriculum that we have in schools. We're clearly more European than we are Asian as Americans, Mm -hmm. even though that that number is growing from Asians, from from an Asian perspective. Mm -hmm but I feel like we know so much less about the Asian culture as Americans. But I think we're equally invested in the relationships between Japan and South Korea because they are—they don't have the same politics as the United States, but they've been very good friends for a very, very long time. Do you think that President Xi in China, who has seems to never run out of money and seems to never run out of ideas as to how to put his finger in the eye of the United States, whether it's nearshoring and opening up manufacturing facilities in Mexico, chemical compound plants, Mm. running drugs. He is not a friend of the United States, but it's almost like we can't coexist without the relationship from a commerce perspective that we have with China, because they make everything cheaply. But do you think that commerce ultimately wins the day? And do you think that people convince him to tone it down, or you think he's just going to be the big bad bully until somebody hits him?
0: I think uh, commerce has a lot to do with it, the trade, you know, the balance of trade. But I, I think China has, uh, has felt like a second-class citizen for a long time. They've well, they've been, been treated like one. Y- yeah, a- and so they are emerging. And, and so it's the younger brother who's now put on some bulk in, and gotten strong and smart, and they want to be at least equals, if not superiors. And and so that's creating friction in our relationships and I think in the world order.
1: I don't know that he's had the ability to ask himself a couple questions down the road or he refuses to acknowledge it. The allies that he has are too disparate from a belief system with China, Russia, Iran, Syria like that. If you put the four of them, the great unifier is that they don't like the West. They're not alike as people at all. Yeah. But if you look at the values of the West and a, it, you know, a tens of trillions of dollars GDP, and then you look at the GDP of Western Europe, who's essentially like our bigger little sister, they don't have the allies to sit there and make that up. Do you feel like it is predicated on pulling people away from the United States or do you feel like it is just about – The division of who wants to be the quote unquote top dog, because I honestly don't in my heart of hearts. It's great to say we're the greatest country on the face of the earth. I believe that you believe that. But if they have a GDP that surpasses America, does it impact us? I don't know. I don't know that it does. We're not going to find somebody else to make stuff cheaper. India. And they hate everybody.
0: Uh, (laughs) I don't I don't know uh, the GDP piece of it, a GDP piece of it. But, you know, they're trying to build, uh, and I saw this in the Pacific, a lot of alliances and, and friends with the countries that we have been aligned with for a long the time. The Philippines. Philippines, I mean, even places like Palau, they have tried unsuccessfully. But huge investment in, uh, in some of those islands and the smaller nations and, and even some of the bigger nations where they fund – Public Works projects. They're building bridges. They're building hospitals.
1: Literal bridges.
0: They're, uh, yeah, literal bridges. They're they're uh, building capital buildings. Um, they're staffing hospitals. They're sending people to you know to build apartment buildings and and uh, and try and help some of these governments that don't have uh, as much independence. You know, with with grants, their Belt and Road initiative. You know, to try and build that influence and get those votes, whether it's in the United Nations or other venues.
1: To watch them navigate politically, if you separate yourself and are agnostic as a citizen of a country, what they have put together is pretty incredible. Yeah. And it's, I realize that they're a big, bad communist government, but they have done it in an unbelievably capitalistic way. And they have bought friends in the four corners of the earth, and they're all sorts of the ugly girl in high school, who she's still a person. She needed a friend, and and you have seen them find countries that you've never heard of, you know. And I'm well-rehearsed. I didn't. I, I had I had to go read through there and look at maps and be like, where is that? <laughs> but I, I do think it's incredibly interesting to watch them, not as a fan, but there's no denying the objectivity of what they are doing as they continue to devalue the currency in the United States. And they have a billion people like there are things they have that we will struggle to overcome. We're not just going to birth 700 million people in roughly the, you know, a a country 75 percent of the size from a landmass perspective. Do you think that the United States has to reinvent itself or any in any way, shape or form to rebuild those military numbers? Or do you think that the numbers need to change based on technology and advancements?
0: You know, we'll never have as big an army as they have. We're, th- their navy we has can't. yeah. Their navy has surpassed us. You know, we used to have the most. We used to have the biggest navy from ships and and people and and that's just not the case. The Chinese have more ships and they have more people, and and so I think you have to look at quality and technology,
1: and they have that too. And,
0: and yeah, yeah. That's why I say you, you know. I think we would go to the aid of Taiwan, but I'd like to not see that tested.
1: I think they would like to not see that
0: tested. Be- because nobody wins that.
1: No. And and I, you know, we I had a I asked you a question a, a couple of weeks ago with the START treaty. And I, I said, why do we disclose the number of nuclear weapons to the Russians? And it was like 1,200 or 1,400. And you said, Ben, how many times do you want to blow up the world? And I was like. Yeah. You know, once you get past 20, does it matter? Yeah. There are a lot of military installations out there. What encourages you? There's a lot of negativity when you read in polarization of the military. Is there anything out there that encourages you in 2023 of the direction that it is going or the advancements in technology? Is there anything you're excited to see?
0: Yeah. But uh, from a military perspective... Uh, autonomous systems, the, the uh, unmanned kind of systems that that uh, we're developing, the U.S. is developing, uh, uh, they're being developed all over the world, whether it's the drones, but, you know, they're undersea drones, they're surface drones. You're taking people out of the risk.
1: And it's part you know? of the reason I ask if the numbers need to be adjusted. Yeah. There's clearly people involved in those. Somebody has the joystick. You know, yeah. I've, I've watched enough TV to know.
0: But, but even just from a uh, surveillance perspective, you know, you, your your intelligence, your inf- the information flow, it is much greater, and you don't need all the people to do that. But you know, even even uh, now, uh, after twenty years or whatever it was in uh, in Afghanistan, you know, boots on the ground uh, make a difference. Oh, you, you can't do it without.
1: You can't do it without them. Yeah, Admiral Tillman Payne. Anything you'd like to leave us with? Any final, any any leadership coaching? Anything you want to leave me with today?
0: I, I, I would just, I would just leave everybody in the in the audience as well on, on a on an up note. You know, I, I had uh, in my career, I had a chance to serve in the Great Lakes, which is in the Midwest, um, just north of Chicago. This the Navy's boot camp, and so I would periodically have a chance to to dine with the the brand new sailors that had just been through boot camp. Um, <laughs> you, you know, and it was the first time in about. 8 weeks that they'd had more than 8 minutes to eat their meal and they could they relax. forgot how. Well, they they were they would just wolf it down, you know, up until then and and so the pressure was off. The quality of young men and women in this country and the contribution that they want to make, the focus they have is Really fantastic. And that's where our future lies. That's where the future of this country lies, is with those young people. And, and they are, I will tell you, the ones I ran into that were going into the Navy are just spectacular.
1: Good. It's been an honor and a privilege to have you. Never had, never had an admiral. You gave me tons of good political answers. I can't wait to uncover when we hit stop to see what you really thought about everything. I always <laughs> laugh because if, if you have somebody who currently sits in Congress— or you have a somebody who's a governor. You kind of wait to hit stop so you can. Man, what do you actually think? <laughs> uh, and, and it was to, to the same point. You remind me of my dad, who I never knew his political leanings until the late '90s when he got out of the military. And I could, you know, I could guess, uh-huh. but but I always had a tremendous amount of respect. It's why I like General Mattis. It's why I like David Petraeus. But I like people. Where you know that they're good, solid leaders and they deal in truth. People, th- that's the thing that really concerns me about public service from the elected official perspective. Is that like if you're going to sit there like we did a couple weeks ago and listen to them fight over the debt ceiling, man, those guys aren't any smarter than I am. You are a lot smarter than I am. There's not an ounce of me that could go to school at the Naval Academy and then make it. I, you might you might get 20 years now because the military might keep everybody that they that's willing <laughs> to stay. I have so much more respect for the people like yourself who sat there and did it, went to school, aren't necessarily married to the ideology or married to the idea of furthering this country because it is missing in Washington. Every way you can look at it. Watching Nancy Pelosi... And Mitch McConnell, all of them sit there and fight over stuff that is just age old and tired. I miss the pros in politics,
0: and we need to get them back.
1: It's been another episode of The Ben Burnett Show. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks for having me.